Good morning. Thank you. Um, in the, um, <clears throat> I, I try to think of a of a good way to, um, I guess, to title this this uh, message, and it's something that I'll admit in in the great uh, tradition of many other people in academia. Um, I tried this out on my students first, and uh, not the whole thing, but some of it, and uh, it seemed to work out okay. So, <laughs> so here it is today. Um, you know, in the songs we sang this morning, there was a lot of truth, and I, I think Michelle picked a good set that sort of proclaimed that truth. And uh, so I think, um, hopefully, th- there was a one phrase that struck me, and that was um, that how can some harvest or how can some fruit come out of this old garden? And uh, for some reason, that, that phrase struck me because um, we saw when we bought our house, um, we, we heard that there were truckloads and truckloads of topsoil that left the neighborhood after we... 17, my wife says. Um, and 17 truckloads of topsoil did not come back in. So uh, we have tried very hard to make uh, good things, good grass, good trees, good flowers, and good vegetables come out of that old ground. And eventually we had to kind of use our head. We had to go and do some research, and we had to try some things out. We had to talk to some people, wiser heads. Some of you are in this church, and some of you are not in this church, but we talked to many of you and sort of found out what uh, what would work and uh, eventually got some produce and some grass and things growing in our garden pretty well. Um, it took a fair amount of human wisdom, but that's how we knew how to raise flowers, grass, vegetables. And uh, what I want to talk about today was how we, how we know truth, how we discern truth, how do we understand things that happen to us. Um, so I, I went back to, for the inspiration for the title. I went back to the Rocky and Bullwinkle show. And uh, so, with all due respect to Rocky and Bullwinkle, um, the title is, uh, How Do You Know That? Or, Who Needs a Quadrilateral Anyway? And if you recognize um, the, the one uh, picture, uh, that's Rodin's The Thinker, a famous, famous uh, piece of work. Not Rodin, the person that fought Godzilla, but Rodin. And then the other one is what I would consider kind of a modern piece of work, if I may be so bold, on Spring Arbor University's campus, and that is called the McKenna Clock Tower. But the McKenna Clock Tower is in the form of a quadrilateral, and the quadrilateral um, is basically uh, a large uh, tower, as you can see, but it's got, if you were to look at just the two-dimensional aspect in any direction, there are four sides, um, no matter which way you look at it. And if you look at it, there's four pillars at the bottom, at the base, and you can actually walk in between the pillars. I don't know if you could drive a car through there. It's probably not quite wide enough. It could be. Um, I don't know if anybody's tried that yet or not, but I probably shouldn't say that too loudly. <laughs> but on those, on those four pillars are, are, are written four words that are known as the Wesleyan quadrilateral, which are the four things that John Wesley, who is kind of our, our spiritual forebear in the Wesleyan church, talked about a way we would know truth, how we know how, what God is saying to us. And so I'm hoping that there will be some good application for us um, in looking at this question. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Okay. So let's look for a minute at how people learn. 
Now this uh, is basically a conclusion of science and when I say it's a conclusion of science what I'm talking about is cognitive science which really is a combination of natural science, social science, maybe even some computer science, a lot of things that call itself science are rolled in. So I'm not just talking about, about guys or gals in white lab coats doing experiments on people. It's kind of the general conclusion of science on how people learn. And so the starting point is that uh, new understanding is based upon one's existing understanding. And this is known as constructivism. What it kind of says is that we build new knowledge on existing knowledge. So if I'm going to learn something new, I have to be able to integrate it with what I already understand. If I'm not able to integrate it with what I already understand, I fail to learn it. It kind of bounces off me and goes somewhere else. It doesn't stick. If I'm able to integrate it into what I already understand, then I can start to learn it. I can, I can kind of meld it into what I know and come up with a new understanding, maybe a new way of how I see the world working. That sounds very grandiose, but that's a good way to put it. So constructivism, if you look at this, this seems a bit relativistic. One might say, well, where is absolute truth in all this? We'll get to that. But it's a good question to kind of keep right there. Next thing, and that is that conceptual and propositional knowledge have a mutual recursive dependence, meaning that there's sort of top-down knowledge, okay, conceptual knowledge. I know the big things, and once I know the big things, I can use what I know about the big things to figure out the details. Then there's propositional knowledge, which is knowledge of all the details. And if I know enough details, I can construct maybe a larger explanation for how things work. So one is approaching from the top, one is approaching from the bottom. And what this says is that they need each other. One informs the other. The more details I understand, the more clear my big idea becomes. My big idea becomes better, okay, once I know more details. And once my big idea becomes better, I can explain more details more clearly. So they have a mutual dependence on each other, short of like what Escher conceived of in this, in this uh, sketch of the hands. Okay, this is what recursive and mutually dependent sort of imply. So our knowledge is like that. If there's ever a cut between the two, in other words, our knowledge of the details doesn't inform our knowledge of the big picture or vice versa, then we don't learn something. And then finally, and this is something that's gotten more popular more recently, and that is learning takes place when you're able to self-monitor what you're doing. In other words, there's a part of your brain that's paying attention to the learning. It's the part of your brain that maybe when you were in school, you, you suddenly realize, wait a minute, I didn't think I heard that last five minutes. Or when you're reading something, oh, wait a minute, what did that say again? I don't think that last paragraph sunk in. Whenever you have thoughts like that, that's self-monitoring. That's when you're saying, okay, I'm keeping track of what I'm learning, and now I feel like I have to go over something more carefully because I didn't get it. Okay, so that's called metacognition, thinking about thinking. And that's also an important aspect of learning. So all three of these things sort of have to be in place in order for us to learn something. Now, as I hinted at before, there's, there's some, you can see some relativism based in this. In other words, where does absolute truth fit into all this? Because if you look at this by itself, you, you, don't, you won't see absolute truth at all. It's just not there. 
And so this is where a lot of our, a lot of our intellectual learning in cognitive science is going. It's saying we really don't need God. We can sort of bootstrap our way into anything once we have enough experience with it, once we think about it long enough, once we talk to other people and have a communal understanding, we can get our way to knowledge. And we really don't need anything more. And in fact, there doesn't need to be an absolute truth to get to. It's okay just to stay with our own conceptions, our own understanding, our own learning. And if mine differs from yours, then that's okay, good for me, good for you. Or maybe, good for me, good for you, and I turn my back and say, boy, they don't know anything. I could do something like that too. But you kind of leave it there. There's never a final arbiter of truth in this framework. So anyway, this is how people are, the, the accepted state today of how people learn. So, um, let's look now at how we know in science. And uh, this came from the project that, that in science education started almost 30 years ago. Uh, anybody remember Halley's Comet? Okay, a few of you. Some of you don't because you weren't around. <laughs> or you might have been that big. But Halley's Comet makes a, makes a run through our solar system on, on a fairly repeatable cycle. And the next time it's going to come, it's going to be in 2061. So the goal was to understand how to bring scientific literacy to people so that the next time Halley's Comet came around in 2061, uh, which I don't expect to see because I'll be 100, but you never know. The next time Halley's Comet comes around, there will be increased scientific literacy. So that's kind of where this came from when I talk about how we know in science. So again, this is fairly well accepted by people in science. And that is that, first of all, science demands evidence. Makes sense, right? You can't just say something's going to happen without showing evidence. And the evidence has to be something that satisfies a lot of people. In other words, it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense um, if, uh, if uh, Diana, pick your Diana, if Diana uh, was, was to do something, an experiment, and say, wow, I've discovered this thing, and then the other Diana was to do the same experiment, and it didn't work. So if it worked for one Diana and not for their Diana, then it really wouldn't be science, because it should work for both Dianas. Okay? So there should be evidence that something works, and it works all the time for everybody. It's a blend of logic and imagination. So that means that some of the people that are really successful in thinking scientifically can imagine something that isn't tangible. Okay, maybe it's a concept, maybe it's something microscopic, but they can picture it in their minds or they can sketch it out or they can even develop a mathematical model for it, and they, but they can't touch it. It's not out here. It's not something you can build or feel first. So they conceive of that and then they can actually put it to use. So if you ever wonder why some people seem to be really good at science and some people don't, this is one of those things that sets people apart. Okay, if you're not able to visualize things or imagine things that aren't discernible or tactile, then you're probably going to have a more difficult time in science. Another aspect of it is that science explains and predicts. And this is why science is even useful in the first place. If it didn't explain and predict things, then what good would it be? Right? If I didn't think that I could take vitamin C and ward off the common cold in some way, okay, so science understands that vitamin C is a contributor to helping your immune system, and if you take some vitamin C and get enough of it in your system, it's going to help you with things like the common cold. So there's an explanation and a prediction. So I can run an experiment, right? I can take vitamin C when everybody around me starts sneezing and sniffling, and I stay healthy, and suddenly I think, aha, I've, science has helped me out here, okay? So this is a very strong aspect of science explaining and predicting. Scientists also try to identify and avoid bias. 
So again, I kind of referred earlier that if one Diana does an experiment and the other Diana doesn't see it work, then it's really not science yet. It's not really science, so they can both do it. But one of the things science tries to do is say, okay, it's not because anybody is better or worse. It should work anywhere. And if there's something that gets in the way of the experiment, then we need to figure out what that is, eliminate that, and then go back and redo the experiment or, or try the finding or attempt the theory again and see how it works. So it tries to identify and avoid bias or error, if you will. And then finally, and this is, this is have an important one, is science is not authoritarian. It's durable, meaning that scientific ideas, once they start to, start to be held by the greater community, they should stick fairly well. But that doesn't mean they won't change. So how many of you went to school and never learned about plate tectonics? There should be some hands up, because if you went to school... No, you went. You learned. Keep your you keep, you keep your hand down. If you if you were in elementary school, like in the 60s or early 70s or before that, you didn't learn plate tectonics in school because it wasn't taught in school. It wasn't really developed until the 60s. Didn't hit the textbooks until the late 60s, early 70s. So I, I'd be in that group. So science changed, right? Plate tectonics came along. Now it's pretty well accepted. It's taught in, in schools and et cetera, et cetera, but it wasn't there before. How many of you grew up learning about five kingdoms, five plant and animal kingdoms? Okay. Some, some old-timers are holding up a three. <laughs> okay. That was first, first envisioned by Aristotle. Uh, so if you're holding up a three, you're really old. Um, <laughs> But, but when I was in high school, there were five kingdoms, and uh, we moved to six somewhere along the way recently. How many of you remember nine planets? How many of you were taught in school nine planets? Yeah, it's still true. That's right there. <laughs> conspiracy theorists saying that we're out to get Pluto, right? But Pluto's been, been thrown off the list of planets. But there's some examples that scientific ideas, ideas are durable, they should stick, but they can change, and they do change even in our lifetime. They do change. Okay, so that's how we know in science. Now let's con contrast that now with how we know in Christianity. And this is where the Wesleyan quadrilateral comes right back in. Now remember, from earlier, a quadrilateral in mathematics is a four-sided shape. And it doesn't matter how long any of the sides are. All that matters is there's four sides or that the interior angles add up to 360 degrees. So instead, we have a conceptual quadrilateral here. We have four aspects of knowing God that all work together and they, they form a figure of some sort together. And that's what the Wesleyan quadrilateral is. And this is John Wesley, by the way, up here. So in case you ever wonder what he looked like when he's preaching, and, and that is from... Uh, I'm trying to think. I think it's Epworth Market. That's an engraving in Epworth Market. So it's, it's also very old. But these are the four components of the Wesleyan quadrilateral. One of them is Scripture. And, and uh, this is sort of follows along 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is given by God, inspired by God, profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. Okay, so that's kind of the, the basis, Scripture, for at least for us Christians, it's the basis for our, our knowledge. It's the starting point, the jumping off point, or even something that subjugates everything else. We'll talk about that a little later. But scripture is one of those pillars of the quadrilateral. Tradition is another one, and that is the wisdom of others. Now, by the wisdom of others, you can go back as far as you want. You can go back to after the Bible is written and talk about some of the, the church fathers. 
um, or some of the early saints and some of the councils they had um, and some of the decisions they made as a result of that, some of the church denominations that are formed in the meanwhile, some of the decisions they've made and policies, they've tack- doctrines they've adopted and, 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 st- and structures they've set up. All of that is what we call tradition. It even extends to now. Okay, when we have people nowadays, you might think in your head, who are some people that if they say something is true, I'm more likely to believe it on the basis of who they are. I know we, we've, we've had for a long time a strong uh, Dr. David Jeremiah uh, fanboys fan and fangirls here. Yeah. That would be an example of somebody who, who you respect what they say and you would be willing to say from, from the, the standpoint of tradition that if they say something, even if you haven't explored it yet, you're favorable towards it until you can check it out yourself. Okay, so tradition is one of the, another of those aspects of the, of the quadrilateral. It's a way we understand the knowledge that, that's out there and how we know something is real. Next one is reason, and this is just within ourselves, sort of puzzling through something ourselves. You know, God gave all of us a very good mind. In fact, um, in Psalm 8, it says that as fantastic as the heavens are, as glorious as they are, that we actually bring God more glory. We give more glory. We testify more to God's glory. And one of the things that testifies to God's glory is our, our human faculties, our minds. And some of you in here can say, yeah, I've got quite the mind. Some of you in here, in here think, no, I really have never had a reasonable thought in my whole life. <laughs> and then we've got a group in between there somewhere. But I'm here to tell you that no matter where you think you are in terms of your reasoning skills, your reasoning skills are amazing, and they testify to God's glory. And we can use those reasoning skills to puzzle things through ourselves. So it might be relying on what other people say. It might be looking and trying things out for ourselves, thinking things through for ourselves, reading, discussing, but ultimately puzzling it through ourselves. That's another way that we know how something is. And then finally, there's experience. And experience is basically where God reveals something to me. And there, there can be, um, I'm going to use this word, but please don't think I'm using it in a bad way, mystical aspect to it, which means that I experience something and you don't. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Maybe if I experience it because God revealed something to me, there's no way I can possibly impart that to you. Right? We talk about the word um, empathy, but it's hard to completely empathize with somebody else. Sometimes we go through similar experiences, but all of our experiences are unique, and they inform us in some way. Our prayers are unique. We don't always understand how God speaks to other people in prayer, but we do understand how God speaks to us in prayer. We don't know how God's voice sounds to somebody else, but we know how God's voice sounds to us. And so we can explain, here's how I know, because here's how God has worked with me. Your mileage may vary, but this is how God's worked with me. Now what's interesting about this, okay, is if you compare the two, if you look at how we know in science and how we know Christianly, there's actually a fair amount of, uh, of, of similarity. In other words, if you were a scientist, would you espouse tradition? Well, yes. You have scientific societies. The earliest one or that was organized one was the Royal Society of London. Um, but there are other scientific societies and professional organizations that scientists or are a part of where they, they fall in line for a tradition. Even what we call the experimental method, you know, the scientific experimental method, is actually a cultural phenomenon. And it, there's not necessarily a scientific method in other cultures. So it's more like the Western scientific method, if you will. 
but it follows a tradition. So scientists follow tradition. They follow the teachings because not every scientist can be good at everything. They have to take other people's word for it sometimes. So they do that. That's following the steps tradition. Would a scientist say that reason is important in how they know the world? Yes, absolutely, right? As I said before, if it doesn't work for you, then it doesn't work. You have to see that something works for you and for anybody in order for it to truly be science. Would a scientist say that experience is important? Absolutely, because the whole field of experimental science comes into play from this. If you can't do an experiment, if all science is just thought and theory and concept and you never could do something with it or build something with it or verify it or even approach an understanding by doing rather than just by thinking, then science would be a lot poorer. So there's an experimental aspect of science. So experience does matter quite a bit. Now, I'll just throw something out to the people that were here Friday night for the marriage study. Um, if you think about head and doing and heart and you see those three, you could go, hmm. Anyway, now let's look at this side. Do Christians demand evidence? Okay. Do Christians ask for evidence of something? If I were to come to you and tell you this great revelation, would you want to know more? Or would you just run out and start telling everybody else exactly what I said? No, no you'd probably want to check it out. Right? So Christians also ask for evidence too. Would you say Christianity is a blend of logic and imagination? If that weren't true, then we'd have no room for artists if we threw out imagination. We'd have no room for the linear thinkers if we threw out logic. But we need both groups. So if both groups are present and needed in the church because in order to understand as Christians, we have to have a blend of logic and imagination. What about explaining and predicting? As Christians, do we try to explain and predict? Well, if prayer wasn't something that we could rely on to predict what was going to happen, we probably would remove a great motivation for wanting to pray. If there's somebody that's sick, and Scripture tells us if somebody's sick to pray for their healing, that's a prediction, isn't it? It's also sometimes an explanation. If we, if we see something that happens and we want to know why, so we go to Scripture to ask for Scripture to explain why this is happening. Again, this is an important part of how Scripture helps us. It explains and predicts. And finally, could you say Christians try to identify and avoid bias? Absolutely. If the Bible works for me and doesn't for you, how satisfied would I be with that? Not at all. Not one bit. I'd want, I'd want Christianity to work for everybody. And where it doesn't work, or where somebody has favored one group or one culture or one ethnic race over another, then we work to correct that. I mean, that's been true, regardless of what some of the stereotypes are. That's been true. Sometimes it's taken a while for Christians to kind of get it through their heads about this. But we've gotten there faster than people that didn't have Christ got there. That's historically accurate. Here's where there's tension between how we know as Christians and how we know as scientists on this one right here. Because science does not like authoritarianism. Science does not like being told what to do. Science wants to be able to have to hedge a little bit. Or we used to call them weasel words. Science likes to throw a weasel word in just qualify things just slightly just in case it doesn't quite work out because you might need a better explanation than the one you have now so science is always looking for the next better thing the next better explanation but with scripture we feel like we have the thing that we need and this is where the tension often comes in between how we know as christians and how we know through cognitive science 
It's interesting because Francis Collins is a Christian who's also the director of the National Institutes of Health, has been since 2009. And he sort of had a combination of homeschooling, public schooling, and private schooling, kind of an interesting montage. And he actually became a, a Christian later in life. And he says one of the greatest tragedies of our time is this impression that has been created that science and religion have to be at war. And I wouldn't say war. I don't think they have to be at war. But there certainly is a tension between how we know just as people, just using our human faculties and our senses and who we are as, as, as people, versus what God has available to us. And I feel like scripture is that, that extra ingredient that Christians have. And that causes consternation to people who are not Christians. So... One of the things that's important then is to think of how we view Scripture because this is sort of the key thing. In other words, you could, when I talk about the Wesleyan quadrilateral, somebody could be right there with me on tradition, on reason, and on experience. We're all, we're all there. Okay? I could have an atheist standing next to me. We'd, be both, we'd both be there. This is where we diverge. So how do we view Scripture as we look at how we know something, how we know something is true? And again, I want to go back to this metacognitive thought. So I said to plant it right here, right? So you might have to retrieve it now. Okay. To keep in mind that we are limited. In 1 Corinthians 13:12, it says, Now we see darkly, kind of as through a, a cloudy glass or an, a, an occluded glass. But then, in heaven, when we're with Jesus, we'll see face to face. We'll know exactly and perfectly. Now we know a bit but then we'll know perfectly. And so let's keep that in mind as we look at our view of Scripture. Now, there's a, a different ways of looking at Scripture in relation to the other three elements. Here's one way to look at it, and that is that Scripture subjugates the others. In other words, Scripture is on top, Scripture is supreme. This would be a quadrilateral that had one very, very long side to it, or one very strong side to it, and three very small or weak sides to it. So the one long side, the one strong side, dominates the others. This would be the way that uh, I would say somebody who's a, a, fund, a Christian who's, who sticks to the fundamentals of the faith, who um, looks at everything that happens here as God working out, but as us not understanding things completely, and that there's an aspect to Scripture where Scripture can say something and you may not understand it because you are limited, not because Scripture is limited, then this would be the way you'd probably look at the four to working together. That Scripture dominates. Scripture sets the pace. Scripture encompasses, and the others help to fill in the gaps. The others help us to understand. Now, sometimes we can look in Scripture and we don't always see wisdom that we think we need for today. For example, there's nothing in Scripture that says how many hours a day you should let your kids play video games. Okay, it's not going to find that in there. So you might have to look for a larger, right, a larger piece of scripture that covers that detail to inform you on that. And sometimes we're not able to figure that out. And there's an inclination when we do that to blame scripture for that. Well, maybe we didn't hold on to scripture very well over the last couple thousand years. Maybe we let a lot of bad interpretations come in. Maybe, uh, maybe scripture was written by fallible people and they didn't quite know what they were talking about. Maybe some of Scripture is really from God, and some of it has people, the, the wisdom of the writer, embedded in it, and we have to figure out which is which. Maybe some of it was only relative, or relevant, I should say, for the time it was written in, and are not relevant for us now. So we have all these explanations for why Scripture may not make sense, and they tend to blame Scripture for it. We don't ever look at ourselves and say, maybe I'm just too limited. Maybe 
in this world, I'm only going to get so far in understanding this. Well, another way to look at it is to sort of make the quadrilateral an equilateral or a square. All sides are equal. All sides have equal strength. And there are some people that do this, where they put scripture right in there on the same level with experience and reason and tradition. And so it, it, it's a factor. It's something I consult, but it's not the only thing. And it, there can be like, an, like a democratic vote on this. And if I get three to one, then I can outvote somebody. So if I see something in the scripture, but then tradition, reason, and experience all go the other way, I can overrule scripture and go with the other three. That's what this model says. Okay, So it's, it's a good democratic model. But it's very different than the first one. The first one says, if I find it in Scripture and I understand it in Scripture, it's going to go. And everything else has to follow suit. Well, then there's yet another way to look at this. And that is to put Scripture at the bottom. This would be one of those quadrilaterals where three sides are really long and strong. And one side is very short and weak. And with this model, Scripture basically has to fit into the gaps that are left by tradition, reason, and experience. And where it can fit into those gaps, it's okay. But if it runs into conflict with one of those other three, if scripture is contrary to the traditions or what the community says or what the current state of the art or the knowledge base is, then it's not right. If scripture runs into a contrast with my own experience and how I see the world working and what's, what's happening with me and how I think, then scripture has to take the back seat. Okay. That's how this view comes about. So, one of my questions is, how do you see scripture? Because I feel like, if I'm asked, how do, you, how do I know something? And if I have the top view, one of the things I can always say is, you know something, this is how well I understand it, but I'm limited. And if I can't explain this very well, or if there's a gap, or I can't communicate or convey it, then it's probably my fault, because I'm limited. And not scripture's fault, because it's limited. But if I'm in with these other two, then for all intents and purposes, I'm really following along with science, with the capital S. And I'm not really following along with Christianity, with the capital C. So, again, I think as we go through looking at things that happen to us and ask ourselves, how do we know that? One of the things we always have to keep in mind, metacognition, right here. I'm limited. I'm limited. If I don't get it, it might be me and not scripture. Okay, so let's look at the conclusion of the matter. How do you know that? Something comes up. Well, first of all, we look to Scripture first for its wisdom, and then we look at reason, tradition, and experience and apply that when we're unsure of Scripture. They help us out with filling the details, but they're subjugated by Scripture. They're not equal to Scripture. They don't tell Scripture what to do. That's going to get tricky because as we get deeper and deeper into our culture diverging from Christianity, more and more we're going to be asked to put Scripture aside and start doing and thinking like other people, using those other three pillars or sides of the quadrilateral, but ignoring that fourth one. So this is only going to get harder, I think, and harder and harder. But if there's anything to be take comfort in, and that is that the church started in that exact same environment. The church started in an environment where the greater culture was unfriendly to what the church and the scripture and the apostles had to say about the Lord. And Christianity thrived in that. 
there's a silver lining in that cloud, I believe. Secondly, it's not that there is no truth, but that we're too limited to grasp the truth. The trick is, for us as Christians, to sort of get comfortable with this idea. That's where Hebrews 11.6 comes into play, when it talks about faith. Okay? Knowing something that we haven't seen, being sure of something that we don't necessarily get. Some people think that faith is, is for weaklings. But what it does, it helps to negotiate a very difficult thing, and that is understanding how our, our limitedness still will allow us to function in the world. Faith is what makes it up. We ha- I have faith, and thus I'm able to function. If I didn't function, if I didn't do that, and I just ran into my limitations, I probably would just want to sit down, curl up. I can't curl up as well as I used to, but I curl up and just lay there, un- unknowing what to do. What I don't want to do is blame Scripture for my inability to understand it or grasp it or follow it. If we have no central source of truth, in other words, Scripture is what sets us apart from just understanding stuff with our own human faculties. If we don't have that, and if Scripture doesn't hold a high place, then really we have no Christian faith. So I'll say that again. If we don't put Scripture in a high place, and we don't allow it to speak to us as truth, with a capital T, then we have no Christian faith. We might still be good people. We might still be good citizens of the country. We might still be good employees of the company. We might still be good students of the school. We might still be good members of the family. But we have no Christian faith without that. And then finally, we're human. Okay? So we can unashamedly use the cognitive tools that are available to us to understand things, to know things. In other words, it's not a bad thing to look at tradition and see what other people have said or are saying. It's not a bad thing to wait until I figure it out before I start to act on something. It's not a bad thing to say, I need to experience this myself in order to really understand this and to recognize if somebody's experiencing something that I haven't, they may have an understanding of God that I don't have. It's okay. I can leave it right there. Hebrews 11.6 allows me to leave it right there. So I hope that these are the four things you'd remember from this morning. This is how we know what's happening. And this is why we're the ones that need the quadrilateral anyway. Let's pray. Father, I'd just like to thank you so much for your goodness to us in revealing yourself to us. Thank you, Lord, that you don't just require us to read a scripture that we are too limited to understand sometimes, and that's it. Thank you, Lord, that you have other ways that you speak to us through others, that you speak to us through our mental faculties, and that you speak to us through our experiences as well. Help us, Father, again, to understand and know your voice, to respond to your voice and your voice alone. Help us, Father, to be willing when somebody brings an idea or a thought that doesn't line up with Scripture. Help us, Father, to be willing to say, I'm not buying that until I can see it in Scripture. Help us, Lord, to be men and women of influence in this world so that the truth that we sang about in those songs earlier today is also a truth that we can stand upon. In Jesus' name, amen.